Welcome to Skip the Queue, a podcast for people working in or working with visitor attractions. I'm your host, Kelly Molson. On today's episode, I speak with Rhiannon Hiles, CEO of Beamish Museum. We talk about wiggly careers and finding opportunities that use all of your skills. We also discuss philanthropic thinking and how to use this approach to support the funding of new projects. If you like what you hear, you can subscribe on all the usual channels by searching Skip the Queue. Rhiannon, it's lovely to have you on the podcast today. Thank you so much for coming on. I'm very excited that we've got Beamish back on, if I'm honest. So I know that we've had lovely Matthew Henderson, one of your past colleagues, came on not too long ago and talked about creative ideas for driving commercial income. But I've recently experienced Beamish, which I'm sure we'll talk about later on in the podcast. (laughs) So I'm really, really chuffed to have you on. It's lovely. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. I've been dying to talk to you as well. So this is great. We had that initial conversation, didn't we? And so to be talking to you again today, it's brilliant. Uh, Well, hopefully you still feel like that after I've asked you these icebreaker questions. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Let's start. Okay, I want to know, what's the worst gift that you've ever received, but you had to try really really hard to, to kind of be grateful for? Oh, well, I, I used to have um, a black and white collie. When I was growing up, we had we had a small holding and we always had collies. And I had my favourite collie was called Woody. I loved Woody. Woody came everywhere with me, black and white. And uh, I was out somewhere once and I said, oh, she looks a bit like a badger when they asked me what she looked like. And then people kept giving me badger stuff all the time, all the time. And, I, and I, my house was getting full and full and full. I was a student at the time and I had a student house that was full of badger things. And I just kept, I was always very polite because I was brought up to always say thank you. Thank you very much for the present. Inside, I was going, not more badger things. <laughs> <laughs> and when, when I eventually like thought, oh, I was moving and I thought, I'm going to put all those badger things in a box and take it to a charity shop. And I did that. <laughs> oh, and some, somebody would have loved that big box of badger rubbish, wouldn't they? <laughs> somebody. <laughs> you get this if you've got a sausage dog as well. So we, we used to have a sausage dog. The minute you have one of them, everyone thinks that you are Dachshund mad. And, yeah. and you're not. You've just got a Dachshund. But like, they buy you everything that's like, I've got so much stuff with Dachshund. I, feel, I hope the person's... I don't know if the person that bought me this is listening. Is listening. I've got like (laughs) makeup bags with Daxons on. I've been bought like shopping bags and things like that. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, she's cool and all that. But I don't need to dress myself in Daxon paraphernalia. (laughs) For now, any time that anyone buys me anything rubbish, I'm going to put it in the badger box. (laughs) (laughs) Right. I love that. Okay. Well, this is definitely not going to be badgers. But if you had to pick one item to win a lifetime supply of, what would you pick? Um, it's not really so very sustainable. And everyone who knows me will be like, you are. It sounds so vain. Mascara. Oh, yeah. No, I'm with you. Sorry. Yeah. No, that, <laughs> that's that, really vain. Do apologise. Mascara would absolutely be on like my Desert Island discs. If I was put, if I was sent away somewhere, I would need, not Desert Island discs. What am I talking about? If I was on a desert <laughs> island and I could take one thing, I'd 100% have water. <laughs> when I was when I was pregnant and packing, you know, you pack the bag ready to go to hospital. And I was like, have I got everything in? And I was like, I've got mascara in. <laughs> and everyone was like, you will not want that or need it. And I was like, I will. And that, to be fair, I'm not actually certain that I did care. <laughs> but I was safe because it was in there. Should I need it? Yeah. At the time, things like that are really, really important, aren't they? Have you ever had the fake eyelashes put on so you don't have to bother with it? Uh, oh, no, not not to that degree. I've, I've had When I was a teenager, I was a goth and I thought I was Susie Sue. So this is in the ni- 1983. And, and I really thought I was Susie Sue and I'd spent ages studying the way she had a, her 
ticks in her eyeliner and her, and her eyebrows. So I spent ages perfecting that, and I couldn't get like the the uh, the eyelashes to work in the corners to to the what I wanted. So I, um, I probably probably from Superdrug or the equivalent in 1983, because I can't remember where it was. It was in Durham. I'd snuck in with my pocket money, and I bought these stick on ones to go along the top. Um, they didn't stay on very long. No, <laughs> I've, never, I've never had the ones that people actually have physically put in, but they, but then when I see people and maybe one of them's come out, I'm like, uh, it looks a bit odd. <laughs> Stick with I, your own eyelashes. I can't do the put them on yourself. I'm not very good with stuff like this at all. Like, mate, I'm not very good with makeup. Which, but mascara is my go-to because that's that's dead doable, easy, right? isn't it? It's dead easy. Opens up your eyes, away you go. So all exactly. you have to do, you look like a new woman. Um, but I have had the ones that someone puts in professionally before, and the mm. only which were amazing. But the only downside is when you decide that you don't want them anymore, and you take you have them taken off, your own eyelashes look so rubbish that you look a bit like an alien like because you look like you've not got enough lashes because you had loads before with the extra ones so yeah little tip for you everyone you'll look like an alien i'll, I'll remember that <laughs> right what is your unpopular opinion for us i listen to your podcasts and I, and I love hearing what people's unpopular opinions are and i listen to the one with bernard donahue and the other two brilliant chaps and one of them had nicked my unpopular opinion and yeah. I, I and I, now i don't want to share it because they think well they didn't nick it because they didn't know that i was going to do it but i used to live in the museum i used to live in beamish um and it it was brilliant at the end of the day when visitors weren't there it was amazing. Oh, this is what Paul said. Yeah, Paul yeah. Kelly said that the best thing about the attractions is when people aren't there. <laughs> yeah. Now, like during the day, I would never think that or say that because I love being amongst all the people. But when I lived in the museum, when everyone went, when the trams went, when, when it was deadly quiet, it was like an, it was like yet another place. And it was like, wow, this is amazing now. And it was so different when the people weren't there. But I have to, I have to say it like that for me is an unpopular opinion because obviously visitor attractions work when they're full of people. And although I used to think, I used to think, oh, it's so lovely at, at nighttime or when everyone's gone. But then when it went into lockdown, into COVID, it made me sad when the people weren't there. So then my unpopular opinion kind of shifted. The, a very simple unpopular opinion is that I really don't like mushy peas. <laughs> I'm with you I don't like peas of any form at all I like no I'm absolutely this might not be a, a so unpopular because I've got like a group of friends that are pea haters like me and I have passed it on to my little girl as well which oh, is, I'm, no. try, I'm trying to yeah, yeah I know she's not great she's really good with fruit not good with veg and I'm trying to kind of re- retract that a little bit but she's yeah. heard me say peas, like peas and make the face and now she's like peas Ugh, yucky so we're trying to, yeah, I'm trying to get her to go back, but I draw the line. At my, there's no way I'm having mushy peas in my house. They're foul. And it's like, I think it's like the husky bits. Sometimes they're not really mushed and there's still a bit of husky pea shell in. And I'm like, ugh, not, I don't like it. Oh, it's actually turning my stomach thinking about it. <laughs> um, well, let's see. Whose side of the coin are you on? Are you on the pea lover's side or the pea hater's side? Come <laughs> and join us on the hater's side. Vote now. <laughs> Right, I want to know a little bit about your background, because I know that you've been at Beamish for quite a while, but what did you do prior to that? When I was at school, I was um, really into horse riding. I had ponies and I'd set my sights from about the age of 10, probably, to be a riding instructor. And so I was determined that that's what I was going to do. But I, I was always a very good artist and I used to love drawing buildings and animals. Not all was in the same picture, but I, I loved like this, I loved the shape of buildings and the and I, I was just very interested in them. And I used to travel quite a lot with my grandparents. And we used to always visit museums on the continent in particular. We used to go to open air museums, loads. And I, and I just loved them. We always went in the summer. 
really, really loved them. But I still thought, I want to be a riding instructor. just want to visit those museums and have fun. And then as as I went through school, you flick around, don't you, a bit when you're in school. And Because I, I love drawing. I loved, I loved like sketching clothes. And I, I was a bit of a gothy punk when I was a teenager. And I used to make my own clothes. But I, I also was really into how the interiors of buildings looked. But I continued to ride horses. And I did train to be a riding instructor. But I soon discovered there's no money in that. Unless you've got really, really, really wealthy parents <laughs> with your own riding school and everything. So I, I, I continue to ride, still love horses, um, but knew I, I, I just went on a bit of a quest. And I did quite a lot of commissions, of drawings, whilst I was studying, while I was doing art at uh, college. And then I went on to do architecture and design at university. And while I was at university, I met some people who said, have you ever thought about you know, studying this? And, and have you ever thought about doing some work in museums? And what about open air museums? And I thought, well, I've always visited them and I love them. So I started doing some voluntary work in museums and at the same time supplementing my living by buying and selling antiques. So I was an antique dealer for a while, oh. which is good fun, actually. I, I, I quite enjoyed doing that. But but I wasn't I wasn't the greatest antiques dealer because I was more interested in the history of the things than the money that I was making from them. <laughs> so sometimes I'd be like, "Do you know where this is from?" And I just want to buy it. I'm like, "But it's really interesting." So um, I loved doing that, and I think it, it did give me a really good grounding. So I would really like scrabble around and things. I would go into skips and get stuff out, and uh, I'd all, I'd sometimes knock on people's doors and I'd say, "You've got this really interesting table in the skip. Can I have it?" Um, sometimes I would just pass a skip and go, oh, "I'll just take that." <laughs> in my car <laughs> and then I'd do them up um and my mum one of my mum's friends used to buy and sell um, student housing in Durham and she used to get me to help her to get the houses ready and she'd say she'd say to me I'm going to leave you this is in like 1987 88 she'd leave me with a hammer and she'd say can you knock out that set pot in the corner and when I come back I'll just take you home no no PPE or anything I'd stand there with a the hammer thinking I was like I was 18 I was like I'll oh, just just right I'll just hit it <laughs> <laughs> such everywhere but funnily enough I think that gave me quite a good understanding of the ins and outs of older buildings and I just really knew that I wanted to be involved with telling the stories of people who might have lived in those older buildings so when I started doing that voluntary work in the in a, I did it in a museum in Durham first which is brilliant great grounding it's the Oriental Museum in Durham did lots of work in their stores and then my uncle's friend was a curator at um, Beamish and my uncle said, give give Jim a ring, see if you can get some voluntary work at that be that beamish. So I rang that beamish up and I said, Oh, could I get some voluntary work? <laughs> and it kind of started from there. And I and I thought I said when I went, I was like, oh, I've always visited here. Didn't really cross my mind. You could work here. And I just kind of loved it right from the start. I became immersed. I found a picture of me recently when I'm I'm a bit older, I'm 20, 21 by then. And uh, it's just before I started working at the museum. So it's when I was doing my undergraduate degree. And I'm like, I'm in one of the cottages and I've got all my like goth stuff on. And I think I'm dead cool. I've got my camera. But there's like, I can tell in my face that I was like, I'm like, wow, I'm in the open. This is amazing. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So I think I had a bit of a, a bit of a like, I don't know. Was I going to be a horse rider? Was I an antique stealer? Was I an artist? But then when I went into open air museums, I just knew, I just had this like, just like I don't know fire in my belly whatever you want to call it I was like this is where I need to be and this is where what my quest is this is where I want I want to lead one of these I want to be responsible for one of these fantastic places oh my god what an incredibly wicked I love that so I really like hearing about where people 
think the, the skills that people have and how mm. they then apply them into the roles that they've ended up in. Yeah. Like when I was so shocked when you said about antiques, because I love that. I love nothing better than a Sunday morning mooch around a vintage shop or just like scouring charity shops for yeah. any kind of bargain that I can find. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I was like, oh, she's literally living my life. That's amazing. <laughs> I'd love to do that job. <laughs> I think briefly I was, because I used to go, uh, so a friend of mine who was at university with, he said, well, if you're dealing in antiques, why don't we set up together? Why don't we get a van together? Have you got any money? And I loaned £500 off my mum. And uh, I said, I'll give you it back. <laughs> I don't think I ever did. And we bought this really tatty van. This, bearing in mind, this is like in the late 1980s. And we used to do like um, Newark. We used to go up to uh, Islington in, in Edinburgh near the uh, airport. We used to go around the country doing all the really big antiques fairs and camp. And sell our sell our goods really early in the morning to the dealers, and then all the public would come in. And then I, I started to be like semi all right at it. And a friend of mine had a pub with a little what had been a shop attached to the pub in York, and she asked me if I wanted to sell some of my antiques in in that little shop attached to the pub. So I did that for a little bit, and then I thought I, I think I, it's not quite working for me. There's something not quite right, and it was because I wanted to tell the stories of the things. Yeah. So I I, I enjoyed doing it, and I, I learned lots doing it but I, I wanted to be a curator basically and I hadn't clicked at that point and then when it did click I was like ah it's clicked that's what I'm gonna do and then you stayed at Beamish and you've just Ooh. progressively worked your way through all of these different roles up uh-huh. to CEO now I know. that's amazing <laughs> it is amazing but you hear that quite a lot don't you where people they find the place yeah. and then they stay there because it's got them basically it's yeah. just got them hooked and I I I totally understand this about Beamish. So I did, yeah. I, we were talking about this just before we hit record, but I visited Beamish um, a couple of months ago and had such an emotive reaction to the place. It was, it's an incredible experience. It's the first living museum that I've ever been to. I knew what to expect, but I didn't know what to expect, if that makes sense. Yeah. Like I knew what, I knew what was there and I knew what was going to happen and how we were going to experience the day, but I was not prepared for how, yeah. how completely immersive it is and how how emotional I got actually at some of the areas so can you just give us an overview of Beamish for the for our listeners that haven't been there yeah just, you know what what is Beamish yeah I can and I think you've described it really really well there about it being immersive and emotional so um those elements will will perhaps occur for the visitor they might not it depends what people want to get out from uh, out of their visit but you and I were talking about how increasingly as we have more living memory that we represent in the museum that people will have emotive responses and that I think that goes back to one of the founding principles of why Beamish was originated so our first director Frank Atkinson in the 1950s and 60s had traveled around Europe looking at different types of social history museums he was a social history curator and he'd come across open air museums in um, Skansen in Stockholm in um, Malhagen in Lillehammer and he he was just um, mesmerized by how they told the stories of the people of the locality in in a meaningful way that represented the normality the ordinary the typical rather than being the high uh, high end stories of lords and ladies and aristocracy and he wanted to recreate something similar back in the no- in the north of england because he had seen disappearing stories and communities and lives and and he foresaw that there would be more of that disappearing as he foresaw that coal mines would begin to change or close 
And people laughed at him sometimes when he said things like, I want to recreate a, a slag heap of coal. They went, why would you do that? There's lots. And he said, because there won't be any soon. And he was right. He was right. So the, the reasoning behind the creation of Beamish was to tell the stories of the rural, the industrial, the social history of the people of the north of England in, in a similar way to those that are told about the folk life, which is the lives of the people that you see in museums on the continent. So that's what inspired Frank. And Frank's founding principles have have stayed strong throughout the museum's ups and downs and uh, and I've seen the ups I've seen ups and downs across the years the 27 28 years that I've been at Beamish I've seen lots of ups and downs but I always if ever I'm thinking what should I do next I always think right what does the visitor want and what would Frank think and I don't always agree with what <laughs> Frank would think sometimes I think would I agree with Frank but I always have those two things I think what would Frank think and what does the visitor need to see now and I was watching there's a there's a, a YouTube film called The Man Who Was Given a Gasworks, which is about Frank and his ideas. It was filmed in the late 1960s, and it's really funny to watch. It's very BBC when you watch it. Um, but it, it tells you a, a, a lot about where the ideas came from, but some of the things that he's talking about and the people that, that he's meeting in Skansen and in the continent, and he's interviewed by Magnus Matheson as a very young man, which is quite interesting. And they still ring true, and they still have, have this philosophy that all school children would visit from the locality to their open air museum and that's still a strength that's still very important to myself but also to our museum but also to other open air museums that, that I know so so Beamish kind of it it evolved as a as a concept and then Frank found a, a site to build this big open air site which would tell the story of the people of the north of England and he was shown lots of different sites around County Durham and when the story goes, that, and I've talked to his son about this, and his son says, I think that's what dad did. His, his son's about the same age as me, so he he was, wasn't was born when Frank had this idea. Oh, wow. um, but he apparently got to where you come in at the car park underneath the tiny Tim mm-hmm. steam hammer. So the story is that when Frank arrived there, and the trees hadn't grown up at that point, that he looked down across the valley and turned to the county officer who was saying, do you want this site? And said, this is it. This is where I'm going to have a, a museum of the people of the north. He said it was the bowl and the perimeter with the trees. So it could be an oasis where he could create these undulations in the landscape and tell the stories through farming, through towns, through different landscapes, through industry, through transport. Um, he did at one time have a, a, a bizarre idea, well, maybe it wasn't bizarre at the time, to flood the valley and tell the history of shipbuilding. Oh. I'm, I'm kind of pleased that didn't happen. <laughs> yeah, me too. It's really spectacular when you do that drive in as well, isn't it? When you kind of... I, I, I got this really vivid memory of kind of parking my car walking out across to the visitor center and you kind of look down across the valley and it That's is right. just the vastness of the yeah. site is is the expanse of it is kind of out out in front of you and it is yeah. just like oh you didn't quite grasp how big that site is until you see it for the first time it is it is really impressive it is. And, and actually, I'm taking trustees, our new board of trustees, I'm taking them on a walkabout. And that's one of the key things. You just explained it perfectly. I'm going to use your quote tomorrow morning. I'm going to say this is the Kelly Molson view. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm taking them to that point And I'm going to say, look across yeah. the vastness of the museum and the woodland. We look after all the woodland or the footpath through the woodland. So it's the immediacy of, of where the visitor comes into. The museum is more than that. And so I think there's some we 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 are a visitor attraction and we are self self sustaining, um, but we're also we're sustaining by, environmentally as well in terms of what we do, looking after all that woodland and farmland as well. And I think that we've got there's a lot more still that the museum has 
left to do. I think it's almost like it will continue to evolve and change. It'll be ever changing. Is it? It's sci- someone who I know who runs a museum on the continent. I was saying to them, what, what are you going to develop next? And they've done a lot of development very, very quickly. Um, and they get some very good funding, which is is, is brilliant for them. But um, they have to stop developing because their site is so small. They can't develop any uh-huh. further. They're in the middle of a city and they, they represent an old town. And their site is constrained by its size. And she, they said, we're very jealous of you at Beavers because you've got so much space. <laughs> Just carry on and on and on and on. Well, the, the self-sustaining thing is actually, it's, it's part of what we're going to talk a little bit about today. So I think it was last season we had Matthew Henderson come on who was a, who's the former head of um, commercial operations there and he talked quite a lot about creative ideas for driving commercial income so all of the amazing things that that Beamish have done to really kind of expand on the Beamish brand I mean I'm, I'm sitting here today and in front of me I've got um I've got Beamish sweets I've got I've got a tin of lovely Beamish Jubilee yeah. sweets sitting in front of me and you know, Matthew talked a lot about the things that you did during lockdown and how yeah. to kind of connect with the audience when you couldn't be open, but just yeah. expand on that whole kind of product base that you have. And that that was something that I'm that I was super, super interested in when I came to to visit Beamish as well, because your gift shop is phenomenal, absolutely phenomenal. But all the way around the sites as well, the things that you can buy, you know, we talked about that immersive experience, but you know, you can buy products where the packaging of those products it's not just it hasn't just been created it's been it, it's been created from things that were in use and used as kind of branding back in the 50s and back in the 1800s and that is just it's amazing um but I guess I want to kind of just talk about Christmas so we're on the run-up to Christmas now aren't we we and, are, uh, we are. I want to talk a little bit about how you drive revenue at what is often considered quite a, a quieter time of year for attractions because you've got quite a good process of doing that is is that part and parcel of the hard work that you did during the pandemic to get these products developed yeah so just prior to the pandemic Matthew and I and and, and Matthew talked to you about this we had started to think about how we would turn the museum into a really good profit centre without us looking like we were selling the collections because obviously you've got to be really careful we're a designated museum and all the rest of it there are really easy ways to do that without it being a barrier and we we came up with all these sort of ideas and then we got went into pandemic into the pandemic and it sped it all up for us the things which we've been thinking about would we do or would we not it just we just said but we're going to do it because what else have we got to lose and Matthew did talk to you about that so we entered into this what are we going to be doing what are we going to replicate who are we going to work with what are the things we've already got? And Matthew had been working on, for example, the Monopoly. They'd been working on that just prior to the pandemic. We, we just sold out of that during the pandemic because everyone was at home and wanted to buy board games. <laughs> so we had thought everything will sit on the shelves, but it didn't. It flew out. We didn't didn't have an online shop, but then we suddenly did like overnight. And so we talked about having an online shop and we were sort of getting there and then went into pandemic. And like a lot of folks, it just sped everything up. It really, really did. So so some of the work which we've been doing, which was taking us quite a lot of time, I think the pandemic, silver lining, and people talk about the negatives and the positives of the pandemic, the silver lining for our retail and, and our product ranges was that it really allowed us to move swiftly through ways of helping the museum to be self-sustaining through our immersive sales. When you were in the museum, um, you'd have been into the, on the town street and we have the stalls in there. It's a market town. You would expect to see stalls outside. And all of the products on there are all Beamish products and they've been made either in the museum or they've been made 
by local suppliers who then uh, are only selling through us. Our ice cream is produced by a local ice cream maker, but the method and the flavours are only sold at Beamish, so you can't get them anywhere else, so it's bespoke to us. But I'm, I'm thinking about how we move us into like the next phase, which is all those things which we only sell. For me, there's there's a lot more that we can do in terms of, we've talked about brand licensing and things like that, but in terms of the Beamish reach. So during lockdown, the Harrods of the North, Phoenix, contacted us and said, can we sell Beamish products? And we were like, yeah, Phoenix have rung us up. We were like, Phoenix are on the phone. We are so excited. And we thought, oh, we're going to sell through Phoenix. But for me, that's the start of what we can do with our brand name becoming a high street name, but a but a high street name that has got some gravitas behind it. So I would want to make sure that it, we didn't sell ourselves out. We'd, we'd want to place ourselves in appropriate places, if that makes sense. So you, what I wouldn't want to see is that, that our brand became lessened because we'd maybe chosen the wrong partner or, or whatever that happened to be. But I think that the Beamish Museum brand is strong and I think it could stand on its own two feet as a brand not just at Phoenix and it does at Phoenix so that's brilliant but elsewhere as well and I've got some conversations lined up with with folks to do with high streets and how how we can link up and partner with high streets locally and perhaps that grows and develops as well but also in terms of what we can do through our online sales because we we've lessened our impact there I think but that's probably because the items which people were buying at home during the during the lockdown they can now go out and get they can come into the museum and buy and they want that in the museum experience but I think there's other things that we could do like uh, we have a lot of enamel signs and posters we wouldn't need to hold all that stock in the museum we can work with um, companies who we can who can then download that and then sell that rather than us having to say we've got we have this massive space where we where we just hold loads of stock and and that's a for any museum that's a challenge where do you store things let alone where do you store shop stock as well yeah. so I think at this stage we're, we're on the cusp of something quite exciting but we don't know what it is yet but we've got a, a show Jamie John Anderson around he, he's a good friend of ours he's the director of commercial at National Museums Liverpool and he's, he's brilliant I use him as a bit of a mentor he's great and he, I was walking around with him and he's done work at Warner in the past and uh, with the butter beer and all the rest I was like what can what can we do he's like I, he said I can't there's just so much he said, <laughs> you get lists and lists and lists of things that you could brand license and that you could sell and that would bring that in does that make it harder though to make those decisions yes. about what you do because there's, because there's <laughs> so much you know it's so much that you could do it's not there's not an obvious kind of standout one there's just vast but you know the reams of things that you can it, do it is it is it is and we, we've got um, a commercial manager who took over after Matthew left and she's brilliant and she's still in touch with Matthew they talk a lot about how we would move this forward and which, which product comes first and our collections team are really excited I, I mentioned just now about the post the railway posters and, and the enamel signs that we have people would love those and the, the collections team are like we need to do those first because they're brilliant and they're easy and we can do them so uh, it does make it harsh and and everybody has their own version across the museum about what they think we should do yeah. first so yeah it is it is tricky um and we've we've just dipped our toe in and there's there's other there's other sides of things when we when we enter into our accommodation which will be the first time we've done this at the museum we've, we've done overnight camping at the museum for a while and that's really successful but to have our own self-catering accommodation is coming on next year and I, I would like to feel that if you're staying in the in one of those cottages, that the, the soap, the welcome pack, the, the cushion, the the, the the whatever that is, that you would be able to get that, but that it's bespoke to us, but you would be able, and it's, at a, it's not at a ridiculous price either, you know, that it's it's accessible to people. 
but that people will be able to get those items should they wish to. This was something that was really exciting to me when I came to visit in that, well, there's two facets to this. One that was, um, we were taken round a, I want to say it was the 1940s. It might have been the 1900s, actually. Mm. So forgive me if I've got this completely mm. wrong. But there's an artist's house. 1950s. 1950s house, sorry. <laughs> I've, got, I've got it completely wrong. I said 40s. Oh, no. So we were taken around the artist's house. And what struck me is how the design and the interior design of that house, how similar it is to things that I see now. So interior design is a bit of a passion of mine. It, it, it's you know, something that I'd spend hours scrolling at, looking at on Instagram. <laughs> um, but there were things that were in that house that are now back in fashion. So yes. things, or they just come full circle, don't they, with yes. design. And so that was really interesting to me. And I remember at the time uh, having a conversation and saying, I'd buy that wallpaper yeah. that was on the wall. You know, I would mm-hmm. buy that wallpaper. I would buy that rug that they've got, that throw yeah. that was across the bed. And it was just you know, I was like, yeah, I, I absolutely would do that. Yeah. And 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 so I know so many other people that yeah. would do that as well, yeah. who really want that authentic look in their house. I mean, this this is a 1930s house that I live in, but I would love to have more kind of authentically 1930s elements to it, you know, art deco mirrors, et cetera, et cetera. And you can kind of imagine that not only being popular with the people that come and visit, but actually extending that into well, interior designers that are styling yes. other people's homes. They haven't necessarily been to Beamish, but they know that they can get this incredible thing from Beamish because they know how authentic that's going to be. And then that translated into, you know, Julian telling me about um, the overnight stays. And I was like, mm. but I want to stay here. Yeah. You know, this, now I could stay in, the, you know, potentially in this room. How amazing would that be? That would really like fulfill my interior design passions completely. <laughs> <laughs> So that's the next step for you. Yeah, it is. Um, it was the number one thing that came out of the market research that we did with people um, when we were looking, just before we launched Remaking Beamish over 10 years ago now, when we went out and asked people what they would like to do, what's the most important thing to you. And they all went, we want to stay in the museum. We want to, we want an immersive, we want it, we want to be in it. So we thought, well, okay, we can do that. And we thought about where that might be. And it, it went through lots of different sort of, ideas as to what it would be it was it might it was going to be a hotel and then we thought is that going to work is is it a hotel and then we had some buildings which had been unused and weren't part of any future development plan a a beautiful row of workers cottages and some stabling and courtyard up apocalypse which were outside of the main visitor area with already a courtyard stabling and cart shed so i thought well let's do it there talked to the lottery they were over the moon with that idea because it's it's more environmentally sustainable because they're existing buildings brings more of the existing museum into the public realm and it gives us an opportunity to use areas which to be honest how would we do something with them going forward but also enables people to stay in the museum so a night at the museum literally it's just it's going to be phenomenal there's so many people saying i want to be the first tester of the first one that's open (laughs) there's like a massive queue of people who want to come and be the first to stay (laughs) i want to add my name to the list i don't need to be the first but (laughs) just can't you know i I, what an amazing experience i mean you've lived in the museum so you've actually done this yourself but yeah i just think to be able to extend your visits do that would be phenomenal because yeah. i know that you're building a cinema at the moment as well yeah. so you know come come in come for some dinner to the cinema exactly stay overnight exactly and we we had some european 
uh, museum friends across, we, we run a, a leadership programme across the um, continent and ourselves, myself and Andrea Lubbish and some of us on, um, in Europe. And some of them were over last week and we did a lovely dinner for them up at Pockley. And I don't know if you got time to go up to Pockley when you visited. It's beautiful up there. It is magical up there. And uh, we have this young lad, he's, he's been a trainee chef and he's brilliant. He loves historical recipes. He loves preparing in the old style, but to make it um, edible to make to make it um, something which can then be eaten in in a in a in a venue, and he spent ages thinking about what we would eat and how we would describe it, and it was it was beautiful. And, and as the light was going down, I thought this is what's going to be like for those folks who were going to be staying just across there, just right near Pockley. So I started thinking about all the ways we could make additional revenue. Oh, people will want to pay for this. I want to pay to have Connor come in and do them a period dinner while while yeah. they're staying. There's so many other additional add-ons that we can attribute to the overnight stay should people wish to. I think the, the list is endless. You've mentioned the cinema, cinema nights, there's music, there's dance, different, you know, experience a different cuisine as well. I think there's uh, so much that people will get from the overnight stay, not least that you're going to be inside an exhibit staying overnight, which is really exciting in itself, isn't it? It is magic when you think about it. And I think what's nice is the way that you just you, you talk about the there is there's so much opportunity, but it's the opportunities that people want. You yes. know, you do a lot of work yeah. about, you know, what we're not just selling things for the sake of it. What no. do the, what does our audience really want? And you ask them and you you get their feedback from them, which is absolutely vital. Um, something that you mentioned as well was the lottery. So you spoke to the National Lottery about funding for for what you were doing, which is yeah. brilliant, because one of the things that, that we that we said we'd talk about today was um, I'm going to struggle. I always struggle to pronounce this <laughs> philanthropic thinking. Philanthropic thinking. <laughs> philanthropic thinking. I had to say that slowly so I got it out right. Yeah. Um, so we know what philanthropy is. You know, we we talk about it. It's you know charitable works, works that help others as a society or as a whole. What does philanthropic thinking mean to you, and how do you use this approach to support the funding of new projects? Because that's that's vital for you, isn't it? It is. It absolutely is. It's vital. And we can and need and should do much more of it. And it's something which I'm exploring further with. Uh, we've got a new chief operating officer. We've got a new board. And I've talked to them about this and how this will help the museum to prosper for the future for our people. It'll allow us to invest in some of the um, what I would see as perhaps and others might say is the core activity. So our learning program, our health and well-being program, our environmental sustainability. But to me, those are the things which make Beamish. They're the things which are about our communities and about our people. So if we can have partners who will invest in us to work on those strong elements of what makes Beamish, then that will help us substantially because that will enable those programs to grow, to develop, to to add value to, to people's lives. While we can then use our surplus that we make through our secondary spend, through our admissions, to put into those things which people don't find as interesting. And yeah. I don't like the word when you know when people say oh, it's not sexy, but I, it, people don't find toilets that interesting. But if you don't have good toilets in a visitor attraction, duh, duh. if your entrance is clunky, duh, duh. if the admissions are, and if you're walking around and everything looks a little bit like it needs, it looks a bit tired. So I think that all those things which are so fundamental to enhance the visitor operation but need to have that money spent on them will be able to be spent on because we will have developed those other relationships and I've seen really good examples just recently that have made me feel that there's a lot of opportunity out there the Starling Bank has been sponsoring the whole summer of fun activity for National Trust there's the the wonderful philanthropic giving from a foundation to English Heritage to fund their trainees and apprentices that's amazing that is amazing isn't it I've read about this 
numerous times now and I just think what one it's a fantastic opportunity for people that are going to be involved but what an incredibly generous thing to do so those traditions don't die out no not at all um and I, and I just feel that when there's more and more and more competition for less and less and less grants and foundations which I get and I understand that there's no point just sitting around feeling sorry for yourself on your laurels because all that will end up in is blah, blah, blah. And I've seen, I've been in a museum where the museum sat on its laurels and expected things to happen and expected people to come and it didn't and it had a downturn. And you've got to pro- be proactive. You've got to be the one who goes out there and talks to people and expresses what you can do, that you're a leading light. We're seen as a leading light in the north of England. And that's because of the work that we do with our communities and the fact that we are a little bit, we'll take risks, we're entrepreneurial and we're always thinking about how we can improve the museum, improve the offer and also be there for our people because fundamentally that's what we're about right at the beginning of this conversation we were talking about unpopular opinions and how when nobody was there I was like oh it's quite nice but then during COVID when nobody was there it was awful because that's not what the museum is about the museum is fundamentally there for people people are what brings it to life the hub the buzz it's about all of those engage all of that dialogue that happens on a day-to-day basis and that's so important and I think we already have folks who get really excited by what we offer the the Reese Foundation who are um, an en- from an engineering firm which is in Team Valley already fund our STEM working program because they get that they get that we the work that we do so that is a, an element of already successful philanthropic giving that we've had in the museum and I want I want to do more of that we've got opportunity over the next period to really turn that around and I think when you talk to funders now they expect a proportion of that to be happening the arts council are talking to us about how you can be more philanthropic or work work with philanthropic partners and so even before we were thinking or, or, or were aware that they thought like that, we'd already had that in our mind, that that's how we would work going forward. Mm-hmm. And I think that it isn't just about taking money. It's about having that relationship with the partner and showing how what they've invested in. If it, it And generally, it'll be something that means something to them. And that's why they've made that decision to, to do that. So if you can show back to them, we've been working with a brilliant social enterprise locally called the Woodshed at Sacriston, which is about getting young lads and lasses who aren't in mainstream education as, as they come out of school or, or maybe for them it's not working. And they have done great work together and we have been doing work with them back in the museum. So that those 1950s houses that you went into, they've done some of the woodwork inside there and they did the pitch and put golf. Yep. Yeah. And then they're like, they came along to the opening of the 1950s and uh, two of the lads came up. They were like, I, I like you, Rhiannon. Like, and I said, I am. How are you doing? And they said, I, I feel like this might be uh, what you would call a, a graduation. <laughs> and I was like, it's your last incident. It's my last week. And, then, and I thought, oh, it's, it's, it's exciting for him. It's also sad. But he said he was moving on to do to get a, another placement with a joiner and I was like that's brilliant uh, another lad's gone on to do stonemason up at uh, Raby Castle so it opens up pathways it opens up journeys it's it has so much benefit oh goodness do you know what that's so weird because that kind of goes full circle to what we were talking about at the beginning doesn't it and you you know you you had all these different skills and yeah. then you brought them together and actually they all fitted really well into the museum sector you've just done the same with these these kids who have now got these skills and they're going to take them back into heritage the heritage space that's amazing yeah it's dead exciting and sometimes people will say to me um you're opening up opportunities people are coming along and learning and then then they move on and I'm like 
that's okay. That's absolutely fine. If if we if they come and learn here, and if there is something for them here, that's brilliant. If there's not, or for whatever reason they choose to go elsewhere, they're taking that skill set and they're still contributing to the economy, to their community, and that is brilliant. So I never look at it as kind of like, oh, why is that? Happening? I look at it as like that is a real opportunity for mm. them, for the museum, and for the economy, for the region as well, for the visitor attraction ultimately. With that in mind that you want to get more people on board is is a, is a big part of your role actually going out and talking to organizations about what Beamish is and if they if they don't know about you already you know I, I'm sure that there are I'm sure that you are incredibly well known around Durham but you know you you have to go out and engage with those organizations to kind of see where those connections can be That's made have you got like a targets list of people that like, <laughs> the people I want to go and talk to in front to. of these people and have these <laughs> conversations but I guess that's that's a that's a creative element of what you do isn't it is, is making those connections and kind of looking and seeing how you fit with them yeah it absolutely is and I, and I think there's there's other elements which are, are really critical for museums for, for charities for the for the sector with regards to how those conversations can be better enabled and how businesses can feel more comfortable in then donating or becoming part of. So some friends of mine who are in Denmark, it's very usual for big, big money-making businesses. When they get to a certain threshold, they have, they've got no choice. There's, there's, it's a, a government responsibility that you then have to choose a charity or a, or a, um, or a museum or a culture sector organization that you give money to so my friend Thomas who runs a brilliant museum has had a lot of his developments funded directly through a a very big shipping company who I probably won't be able to say now but um, a huge shipping company fund their development basically and I I was like he's like oh does this happen for you and I was like no no We have to go and hunt these people down. <laughs> I was like, brilliant. Could you imagine? But, but for me, like Bernard's brilliant because he, lob- he 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 can get in there into cabinet, and he's a, he's a lobbyer. And I think there's some there's some additional work that we as individuals in the sector can do. So I've talked to Andrew at Black Country about this and what our responsibility is to help to change policy. And and, and if nothing else, if, if if you're part of that change, and if you are able to voice how that will then impact on people's lives then that, then that is so important and so critical um it just depends on different parties approaches to what that impact on lives means i suppose but yeah. but at the moment with all the parties um conferences going on at the moment we've got the ideal opportunity to go along and listen but also to have a little pointer in there and say don't forget and this is how important we are that's a skill isn't it in itself uh, i can so. remember a conversation with um, Gordon Morrison from Asa, sorry, formerly from Asa, he's now at, um, mm-hmm. at Ace. When uh, we talked during the pandemic, and he talked a lot about um, how he'd kind of taken some learnings from Bernard in the sense that Bernard is is a, is a you know he's 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 quite strong politically, yes. and he's yes. a really good campaigner. Um, and Gordon said that they were skills that he'd had to learn. Like he he wasn't a lobbyer; it wasn't his natural kind of skill set. And I think. It's really interesting that you've said that because that wouldn't might not necessarily be your natural skill set either, no. but it's something that you've now got to kind of develop to be able to shape policy. If because if there's an opportunity, yeah, 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 take it. That's right, and it, and it's not my skill set, but when you have a strong desire to see something work through change, and you can spot how that change can come about through having the right conversations. It's who you go to for the right conversations. It can also be the skill set. So it, it's that can be quite tricky. And when when we were um, looking for our new board of trustees, 
Um, when we were looking for a new chair, one of the key things we were looking for was somebody who would have that kind of skill set. And we have got that in our new chair. He really does know how to do that. And I, so I constantly feel like, oh, where's he going to now? And who's he going to talk to next? And who's he going to get me like, linked <laughs> up with? And that's brilliant. And he knows how important that is. But we also know, know that we have to take it at the right gentle time. Yeah, so he, he can open doors. And I think that that's so important. And our trustees, we've got a really strong set of trustees who can open doors for us. And, that, and again, that was a, that was deliberate in our approach that we took to have a, di- a very diverse and representative um, board, but to also have board members who can open other doors that we wouldn't normally be opening because yes. we have a strong yeah. set of doors we, we open regularly and close regularly. But also the, the pace of it is so important that it's so all of this is really needed because we're an independent museum. We've got to make sure that we are self-sustaining. We've, our, the, our main money comes from what we make on the door. But if we want to develop, we've got to make sure that we continue to get brilliant secondary spend, brilliant revenue. But on the other hand, we've got to make sure that we bring our people with us, whether they're the staff, the volunteers, our visitors. We don't want to be galloping so fast that they're not behind us when we, when we look around. So yeah. it's very exciting times. <laughs> isn't it lots of exciting changes happening well look we we can't have this podcast without talking about master chef either oh yeah that was brilliant <laughs> <laughs> so that's an incredible opportunity so you're recently on on yeah. master chef where they came to beamish what an opportunity oh it was amazing when uh, but the thing was they said you cannot talk about it you cannot say anything so literally for months we were like <sighs> We're dying to say that we've been on MasterChef and they were like, you can't tell anybody. But I don't know how this managed to keep under wraps because there was literally over 200 staff and volunteers were eating all the stuff that had been prepared. How they managed to keep that under wraps is beyond me, but at the minute it seemed to work. (laughs) How how long was it from recording to that going out as well? Um, It was from February up until just the recent airing, so that's quite a long time to have to keep it to yourself. (laughs) Well done, well done that team. really hard like I said Julie when are they showing it because I can't keep it in any longer because it's Julie who you met who was saying no no they've said it's tight lift tight lift but it was it was brilliant and it was it's great for us for the museum it was it was great fun taking part don't get me wrong and um I was in the in the local court recently and the the lady behind the counter kept looking at the trend you are master chef I wasn't cooking, but yes. <laughs> so I think my new quest now, I'd like to be a presenter on MasterChef. I don't want to cook, but I'd quite like to be a presenter. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I could do that. I could do the tasting, not the cooking. The cooking under pressure, it's just, it's just, it's like another level of stress, isn't it? Like I like to take my time, read the instructions, you know. Only the pressure. It looked lovely though. They'd used the uh, school, they'd taken out all of the uh, benches that are in the school in the pit village and it turned into it looked beautiful they used really lovely um I suppose they wouldn't call them props because they brought them in but they were in keeping with the school it looks so lovely I mean you probably watched it and that that scene of all the staff and volunteers coming in to sit down to their meal the lovely tables the bunting they put up it just it looked it looked right it was brilliant yeah they had some interesting takes on some local cuisine as well Pe- peas pudding ice cream was one strange one but um mm. 
<laughs> got, pee, got peas in it, Kelly. You Mate, don't want it. <laughs> give, me that, give me that one a swerve. Swerve in that one. Right. What um what book have you got that you'd like to share with our listeners today? Oh, well, um, one of our trustees called Rachel Lennon um has written a really brilliant book called Wedded Wife, um, which is a great book. And I've just started reading it. It's about the history of marriage and it's really, really interesting. So I, I would certainly advocate that one. Um I I have a a favourite book, which I go back to quite regularly, which is a childhood book. And perhaps nobody ever would read it, but I love it. And it kind of sums up for me um, what I was like as a child and what I continue to be like as as I've gone through my career. It's called Wish for a Pony. Um, And (laughs) I really wanted a pony when I was between the ages of six and and seven. And then I I wished my wish came true. And from then on in, I believed that anything I wished for would happen. And I, I still have that kind of strange, like, I do. I think I often think I'm going to wish that to happen. And, and But I think it's not just that it's holistic. I think if you really want something and you set everything towards it, yes, of course, some people might say, but then you potentially set yourself up for great disappointment and failure. But I kind of think that you can't do something without taking that risk. So I just tend to think if you want it and you wish for it that much and that's what you're really aiming for, just go for it and and do it. And perhaps the environment in which I've been brought up has enabled me to do that. And I completely understand that for some people that is probably difficult and challenging. I, I do get that. So I feel that if I can help others who maybe haven't got that kind of environment to help them, like those lads and lasses from the Woodshed and Sacristan folks like that, if we can provide spaces where they really want to try something, but they're not sure how to do it, then I think then we've achieved something. Yeah, that's lovely. Uh, do you know what? There, uh, there's... So I'm reading a book at the minute. I've, I've read the book Manifest and it is about visualisation and the power of our thoughts and how we, how we talk to ourselves and the yeah. things that we kind of want to bring into our lives. And there was a little bit of it that, that I was kind of going, oh, I just, I, don't, I just don't, I, the, is it the power of the universe? Is it that I, I just, uh-huh. it felt yeah. a little bit woo-woo to me. Mm. But then I, then I kind of reflected on it a bit and went, but this is about taking action, really. It's about, it's about going, I would I want this to happen in my life and it's not about sitting back and hoping that it might happen just because you put a picture of it on your wall it's actually about going out and doing the bloody hard work to make it happen so have those conversations with the right people who are the people that can open the doors for you go and meet them ask out to them and I think that's a really important element of the whole yes you can wish for something to happen absolutely but you've got to put the legwork in to make it happen as well (laughs) what a great book all right wish for a pony Wish for a pony. Um, <laughs> listeners, as ever, if you want to win a copy of Rhiannon's book, if you go over to this uh, podcast announcement on Twitter and you retweet it with the words, I want Rhiannon's book, then you'll be in with a chance of winning it. I'm maybe not going to show it to my daughter because I'm actually terrified of horses. <laughs> <laughs> you don't want a horse to appear in your garden. <laughs> a horse? No. Her, her, her cousins have got, got a pony. She can, uh, she can, go and, she can do it with them and, and, and not at home here. <laughs> Rhiannon, it's been so lovely to have you on. Thank you. Um, Thank you. Just, I think I feel like this is one of those chats that could just go on and on and on for hours. So, I want you to come back when the um, accommodation accommodation is open. Yeah, because I want to hear cinema. all about that. I want, <laughs> I'm, well, I'm going to visit that cinema. Um, but yeah, I'd, I'd love you to come back on and, and tell us how it's gone once you've, you've had your kind of first guests through That's and stuff. Brilliant. I think that would be a, a really great chat. So I'd love that. All right, wonderful. Thank you. Super. Thank you, Kelly. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Skip the Queue. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a five-star review. It really helps others find us. And remember to follow us on Twitter for your chance to win the books that have been mentioned. 
Skip the Queue is brought to you by Rubber Cheese, a digital agency that builds remarkable systems and websites for attractions that helps them increase their visitor numbers. You can find show notes and transcriptions from this episode and more over on our website, rubbercheese.com forward slash podcast.